0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you, uh, Rex and Jean Ellen. Thanks, Re- thank you, Rex, for uh, standing in for Bert. And, uh, so uh, good morning to all of you. Could you turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. And we're continuing our study of the book of Habakkuk, which is three chapters long. We're coming near the end of chapter 2. And uh, t- in the first session today, we'll be looking at verse 15 of chapter 2 which talks about the fourth of five woes that was spoken by the Lord against the Babylonians. So that'll be our study in the first session. Now, I just got a couple of announcements. Uh, we have, um, for those of you who know Joe and Wendy Field, um, the uh, Mr. Charles Buddy Davis, uh, father of Wendy Field, uh, passed away in Mississippi last week. And uh, so if you could all remember the family, Wendy, Joe, and her family, as they, uh, they grieved the, the death of their uh, their. Uh, her dad, as he went home to be with the Lord, he was a believer, and so uh, that would be very, very much appreciated. Great, great couple, and I've been uh, uh, conversing, uh, going back and forth with Joe a little bit with emails, and uh, so uh, and thank you, um, Mrs. Peak for pointing this out to me. So, uh, and also another announcement is that on Wednesdays, the last Wednesday of each month, as many of you know, we have our corporate prayer meeting. So it'll be falling on the 29th of this month, uh, Wednesday the 29th at 6 p.m. And also, we, we won't be, uh, because of Thanksgiving week, uh, we will not be having class Wednesday, November 22nd. So no class Wednesday, November 22nd we will uh, we'll resume the Wednesday classes that following week on the 29th. So just that Wednesday class, of Thanksgiving, uh, Wednesday class on Thanksgiving week, we will not have service. All right, uh, hopefully everybody's getting ready for Thanksgiving. I can't believe it's almost Thanksgiving. It's amazing. The year has flown by. All right, without further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer. Uh, At DBC here, we uh, always uh, make sure that we're in fellowship with God, and we take a moment of silent prayer, all of us, to examine ourselves. Remember, we live in the devil's world. We all have sin natures, and life does happen, and uh, so uh, we do sin. So we just want to ensure the fact that we're able to listen to what the Holy Spirit's going to say to us here this morning through the communication of the Word of God. So we take the moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves and determine if, any, if we need to confess any known sin to the Father because any uh, mental, verbal, or of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. Now we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Holy Spirit who speaks to us through the scriptures which he's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says, cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with the heads bowed and eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another blessing, another gift you've given to us to be here present on planet Earth and to not only enjoy creation, but also to enjoy fellowship with you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit. We know that you put us on this Earth and you saved us through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, saved us from your wrath in order that we might do your will and that we're here as your servants and as your children to do your will and we come here assembled here to listen to what the Spirit is going to say to us this morning with regards to your will, and we just pray, Father, that the Spirit would do a mighty work through all of us here this morning. I just pray, Father, for uh, this uh, congregation and this, this service this morning that you would help those in the audience by the power of the Spirit to learn and understand and carefully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting here with regards to this verse in Habakkuk 2.15 speaking of the fourth woe that you spoke against the Babylonians. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit guided us in the application. I pray as a result that we would receive our necessary spiritual nourishment, not only to deal with our own issues as individuals and problems difficulties with sin, but also to understand your character and nature and how you govern the world, which we're learning about in this book of Habakkuk. I pray that you would also empower me to deliver your full counsel today. My Father, I thank you for the great honor and the privilege that you give me to communicate the word of God to your people who you purchased with the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And I take this very seriously. So I just pray that you would help me by the Spirit. I can't do nothing without the Spirit. That he would help me uh, to deliver your full counsel today to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence and respect and power. Help me to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. And your word says, when we're weak or strong, your power is manifested in our human weakness. And I pray that through the message that you and your Son and the Holy Spirit would be lifted up and that all of us as a result of this service would bring praise and glory to you. So Father, we pray for this service. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, amen. You should be at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. And we'll get there in a moment, uh, Where Today in the first session, as I mentioned before the opening prayer, we'll be looking at the fourth of five woes that are in Habakkuk chapter 2, where which was spoken, against by, uh, spoken by the Lord against the Babylonians. Now, uh, quickly, by way of review where we are in the book, uh, in case you might be popping into the study for the first time, uh, the book of Habakkuk is actually a dialogue between God and this prophet who more than likely was a Levitical priest and a musician. We know this because uh, the, he's mentions that he mentions uh, the stringed instruments that the psalm in chapter 3 should be put to music to. He talks about that. So more than likely was a Levitical priest that was a musician. But he has this dialogue with God, and this is in the 7th century B.C., probably around 605 B.C., because uh, it's right on the eve of the Babylonian invasion, the first of three Babylonian invasions of the southern kingdom of Judah. So uh, the Habakkuk is having a dialogue with God in this particular uh, book, and this is very unusual. You don't see this like, like this uh, very often in Scripture. Now, again, at, in this particular time in history, we've talked about that it's the 7th century B.C., and so if you recall, uh, going back in Israel's history, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob they're the progenitors of the nation of Israel. Jacob had his name changed by God from Jacob to Israel, and he became the, uh, the progenitor of the nation of Israel. He had 12 boys. They became the nation of Israel. Now, they, they departed. From, when they went into Egypt, remember, they went to G, Egypt via Joseph, and Joseph became the prime minister, and he, it was designed to by God to save uh, his, his family from uh, the chosen family, uh, from the famine. that was a worldwide famine in the world at that time. So he go, they're in Egypt for 400 years. They come out of Egypt, and they're a great nation at that point. And then you have the Exodus generation, we call it, the book of Exodus, led by Moses and Aaron. And so they come out of there, and then they, 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 they didn't go in immediately because of the apostasy, the lack of faith of the Exodus generation, and only Joshua and, and Caleb and their families went in with the children of the Exodus generation. So they go in and they go in under Joshua. Moses passed away, they had Joshua, he goes in there. So as time goes on, they, as the nation is in, in Canaan and the land of promise, as time goes on, they wanted a king and the name, the name of that first king was Saul. And so God didn't like the fact that they asked for a king because he was their king. They wanted to be like the other nations. So God gave them what they wanted. So he gave him Saul and Saul started off good, but eventually uh, he went into decline and uh, because of his lack of faith. And then God raised up a man after his own heart the great King David, who's in the line of Christ. Remember, Christ came from the line of David, and David was in the, line, the tribe of Judah. So we, we see that at that point, David now presides over, he takes over the kingdom from Saul, who died the sin unto death. And David is the king of Israel, and he is under what we call the United Kingdom of Israel. And so after him, we have his, his, his son Solomon and Solomon builds the temple and uh, David set the plans up and the materials for him. So he became the, one of the wisest and the richest men in history. So King Solomon starts off good, but King Solomon goes into apostasy. He couldn't stand, he, his love for his foreign wives and he, against God's word, uh, he uh, accumulated foreign wives who were uh, involved in different uh, worship of the different uh, gods of the ancient world at that time. God was not happy with that. Because they, they, they caused Solomon to drift away from his obedience to devotion to the Lord. So he started off good, but ended badly. So God sent the prophet in there, a very brave man, and he said uh, to Solomon, I'm going to take away the kingdom, not from you, but from one of your sons. And the reason why I'm not going to take it away from you is because of of your father, David. So the son who comes to power is Rehoboam. Rehoboam comes to power. He's a young man. He has two sets of advisors. He has his younger guys and his older guys. Now, the younger guys and the older guys were in disagreement. The older guys said... Who served under Solomon, eased the tax burden because Solomon, because of his building projects, were out of control. So they didn't listen to them. He listened to his younger advisors who told him, Well, you should make it even worse, the burden. So they respect you. Well, they rebelled against them. So then you had what we call a civil war. And this was exactly what God wanted it was discipline. For, the, for, for King Solomon and the nation at that time. So then you have the northern kingdom, we call it, and the southern kingdom. Uh, the southern kingdom was Judah and Benjamin, and you had the other ten tribes. So we had a divided kingdom, and then as time goes on, we see in 722 B.C., God raises up an empire uh, called Assyria. Not Syria, but Assyria. And they were uh, preceded the Babylonian Empire. Assyria comes to power, and God uses them to discipline the northern kingdom of Israel for their apostasy. And uh, so they were deported from the land, and they never returned. And then a little bit of 100 years later, we have the southern kingdom is in apostasy as well. Now, mind you, there was a remnant in the nation that existed, and God always keeps a faithful remnant in Israel in every dispensation, in every, uh, every di- generation of every dispensation. So we had uh, in the, the majority of the, of the southern kingdom of Judah was in apostasy. And so in 605, 597, and 586 B.C., God used the Babylonian Empire, that wicked pagan evil empire that we've been discussing in great detail here, and uh, watching what God used, used them to discipline not only his people, who were in apostasy, but also to, uh, to execute judgment. They were his instrument of judgment for the various nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world uh, in the 7th uh, century B.C. and the 6th century B.C. So, so why do we need to mention that? Well, because when Habakkuk writes this, uh, he is... Uh, speaking to God just on the eve of the destruction of the nation. So it's 605 B.C., uh, Babylon had just defeated Egypt at Carchemish, uh, which is up toward Lebanon and north of Israel, okay? We put that on the map. So they're sitting there poised to come into the Mediterranean region of the world, and God was going to discipline uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, little did Habakkuk know he, in this dialogue he starts off complaining to God about the great apostasy in his nation and it's among his covenant people who are believers. And he goes out, just goes crazy and pours out his heart to God saying, what are you doing about this? Why are you delaying? What are you waiting so long to do something about? This is out of control. It's lawlessness. They're indistinguishable from the pagan nations that surround us. Little did he know that God was watching the whole situation and he was even more angry than Habakkuk was. So God comes back in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1 as we study in detail. He says, I'm sending the Babylonians to defeat your, destroy your people. Well, Habakkuk just can't take that. What do you mean? You're using the Babylonians? Verses 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 17, he complains to God about his choice of the Babylonians. Why? They're a pagan empire. What do you, how, why would you use an evil, wicked nation to, to discipline your people who are in a covenant relationship with you? Now, that is, that is interesting that Habakkuk says that. He should have known in his law that God warned them on the departure of Moses from the scene. Moses gave his farewell address and Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, and he warned the nation that if you go and leave me or are unfaithful to me, I will bring foreign powers to destroy you. And I'll, I'll remove you from the land. So that was in the, that was in the, in the law. And second of all, he should have known better because the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by Assyria. So he should have known that. So chapter two, we we are in chapter two now, and we see Habakkuk just waiting to see what God's going to say, so he can come back at him. But he was surprised by the response. God said in chapter 2, as we're reading, he issues a huge prophecy, which is echoed by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51, that he's going to destroy the Babylonian Empire, but in his timing. So until he's finished using Habakkuk, uh, using uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar at Babylon to discipline his people and destroy these other pagan nations who are in apostasy and gross idolatry for generations, okay? He's going, to, he's going to destroy Babylon eventually as well. And this prophecy was issued about 605 B.C., and it was executed in, in, uh, in 539 B.C., as it we saw in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, where uh, Belshazzar and his father, Nebonidus, were co-regents, and they were defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire, which is a prophecy that Daniel made, that Medo-Persia would defeat Babylon and absorb her into her empire. We're seeing how God governs the nations. Now, why did God wait so long to do this? To, uh, why, did he, why did God wait so long to, d- to discipline the southern kingdom of Judah? Because he wants all people to repent. And repentance means a change of attitude. Okay? Now, for a believer, repentance is confession of sin and obedience. An unbeliever who's not in a, co- a relationship with God must change his attitude about Jesus Christ and believe in him. So this is the context in which we find uh, ourselves right now in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. So as you see on the board, let's read from, uh, if you, have, you don't have your Bibles with you, you can just watch it up here. I'm reading for the, we read from the NIV here, an excellent translation. Uh, Habakkuk 2.1, it says, and we'll read the whole chapter, and then we're going to look at verse 15. And the reason why we do that is so that we can pay attention to the context. That's how false teachers and false teachers are out there abundance today. And this is one of the things that they do. They'll take one line of scripture and take it out of its context. You're not going to see that over here. Not while I'm It's not on my watch, you're not going to see it. It says in Habakkuk 2:1, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, talking about God. And what answer I am to give to this complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation. And make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appoint, appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, now he's going to describe the Babylonians in great detail and their sins. He's listing the charges. Remember this about God, and I pointed this out to you in Obadiah, where God issued the, lists list the charges against Edom. And God will do that. We've got to remember, that so there's a courtroom drama going on right now in heaven. How do we know that? Read the scriptures. The reason Satan was given an appeal, Satan, which should have been his sentence, wasn't executed immediately. We know that from Matthew 25 41, and he's the God of this world, so God must have given him some kind of an appeal. There's a courtroom drama, and that's why you and I need to advocate with the Father, 1 John 2 1, Jesus Christ, because it says in Revelation 12. Satan makes accusations against us in the throne of God as we speak, and he doesn't need lies; he's got the evidence on us. So there's an angelic observation going on. Okay, so God is listing the charges, and he has the his witnesses are the angels. He they're witness to the charges, and he lists these charges before he brings down the judgment. Now, as I said before, it took sixty six years for this prophecy to become true. Which again was echoed by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51. And Jeremiah was a contemporary of Habakkuk. Along with Daniel, as we pointed out, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ezekiel, guys like that. So God always lists the charges. He just doesn't say and just judge and destroy indiscriminately. He's a God of justice and he's a God of righteousness, he's a God of truth. So that's something we need to understand as we look at our, make application of our contemporary situation that we're in with America and all the trouble that we're in and other countries like our own who are in just as much trouble. We may be more because to whom much is given, much is required. We've been blessed beyond measure in this country with great prosperity. And I'm not just talking about material prosperity. I'm talking about unbelievable Bible teaching that's come out of this country from the very beginning of its infancy. This used to be a tremendous... Harvard and Yale were seminaries, originally. Look what he says, verse 4. See, the Babylonian is puffed up. His desires are not right. But the righteous, the believer, who anybody who believes in Jesus as their Savior is declared righteous by God. We know that from Romans chapter 3, right? But he's talking about believers here. We're, in contrast to the Babylonians, the, the believer is to live by faith... In God's word, Paul mentions this, we're to walk by faith, not by sight. You you don't make your decisions based upon circumstances, but what God's word says. Not how you feel, but what God's word says. Okay? Then he says in verse 5, Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest, because he's as greedy as the grave, and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. It's talking about their imperialistic greed, we pointed out. Then it says in verse 6, Will not all of them, and it's talking about the people that Babylon conquered, taunt him, Babylon, with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you'll become their victim. Babylon will become their victim. It's called the principle lex Teleonis. We would know it is you what comes around goes around. As the same way God, Babylon treated those nations and ki- actually killing innocent women and children, by the way. And we'll talk about more things that they used to do with their captives. And God was angry with them. This wasn't just a military action. This was brutality, tyranny, okay? Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. When he says shed man's blood, he's talking about innocent people were murdered by them. This wasn't just the military action. This is what we would call today total war. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him, the Babylonian, who who builds his realm by unjust grain, again, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. He thinks that his imperialistic uh, nation, their power, and their military might is going to protect them. From evil, just like an eagle puts its nest high in the rocky clefts, to thinking it's going to protect them from any kind of predators. That's how Babylon fell. And that's just like we saw in Edom in the book of Obadiah. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing, and what is true then is true today? That statement is true for the nations in our day, including our own. They exhaust themselves living independently of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the essence of evil. Satan's first sin was independence from God. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Isaiah 14, 12-14. That's the essence of evil. And the world is living in that way. And the United Nations is a perfect example of that. We're going to get peace through these nations getting together. You will have no peace until Jesus Christ rules on this earth. There's no peace for the human soul until they trust in Jesus as Savior. And there's no peace for this country or any nation on the face of the earth until Christ comes back and establishes peace. And he'll do so by violent action, military action. Read Revelation 19. He says this, a prophecy of the millennial reign, giving the reasons for what he said in verse 13. For the Lord, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and as, as the waters cover the sea. We do not see that today. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they get, are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You'll be filled with, this, with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand, is coming around to you. And disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overthrow you, overwhelm you. And your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. There we go again. Innocent people. For you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol? Since a man has carved it. Or it can, an image that teaches lies. For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Obviously a condemnation of their blatant idolatry, which our country and the other countries of the earth are involved in today. They might not be worshiping an image, but they're worshiping at the altar of materialism and sports and entertainment, okay? We're just as bad as those people. Our our idolatry is more sophisticated than back in the the day. So Habakkuk 2.15 is our passage, my translation on the board. Disaster to the one who is characterized by forcing his neighbor to drink wine when pouring out his rage, which characterizes him. Yes, indeed, for the purpose of forcing them to be intoxicated, in order to gaze upon their genitals. Now, it says they're, they're to gaze on their naked bodies. They're being sweet, the, the NIV. I'm telling you what it says Explicitly. So, we see in Habakkuk 2.15, it presents the fourth of five woes that appear in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, and the first, as we pointed out, appeared in verse 6. Now, we saw, this is the fourth time in Habakkuk, in chapter 2, that we've seen Habakkuk use the interjection hoy in the Hebrew, and so we've seen it in Habakkuk 2.6 and 9, and we have noted in in our studies of these verses, in verse 12, it indicates dissatisfaction and discomfort and it occurs entirely in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament with the one exception, First Kings chapter 13, verse 30. Now, it can be translated, woe or alas, like the modern translations and the ancient ones, but in today's English, a better translation would be disaster. Why? Because this word, hoy is actually speaking of a sudden, calamitous event bringing de- great damage or loss or destruction Great damage and loss and destruction. That's what the word's talking about. So you can say disaster and all that entails. Disaster of the Babylonian. Now, as was the case when the word was used in Habakkuk 2, 6, 9 and 12, the word here, hoy, woe in your Bibles, in Habakkuk of two fifteen is expressing the idea of the Lord promising that disaster would strike the Babylonians. Now, the contents of verse 15 reveals that this disaster will come against the Babylonians because they repeatedly caused their neighbor to drink wine while repeatedly pouring out their rage in order to make them intoxicated, in order to gaze upon their genitals. This is actually shocking what they're doing, but it was not unusual for foreign armies to rape and pillage and sexually abuse women and even men. Okay? So, back at 215 contains four statements, as we can see my translation as well as the NIV. The first is solemnly asserting that the Babylonians repeatedly forced their neighbor to drink wine. Why is it solemn? Because it's the figure of ascendant there. There's no, there's no uh, connective word and or now but between verse 5, the end of verse 14 and beginning of verse 15. So the second is a temporal clause that took place simultaneously with the first. And it asserts that the Babylonians were pouring out their characteristic rage on their neighbor by repeatedly forcing them to drink wine. And the third is an emphatic purpose clause which presents the purpose of the second. And it asserts that the Babylonians forced their neighbor to become intoxicated with wine as a result of pouring out their rage on them. And then lastly, the fourth statement presents the purpose of the third. And it asserts, as we could say, that the purpose for the, which the Babylonians forced their neighbor to be intoxicated was in order to gaze upon their general genitals, both male and female. So in context, people, the, the referent of the noun reah Neighbor and a back 215 would be the citizens of the various nations and the Mediterranean Mesopotamian regions of the world who were conquered and plundered by the Babylonians at the end of the seventh century BC and at the beginning of the sixth century BC. So uh, as I've been pointing out in the past, I'll give you a, a show you on the map in case people are not familiar with what I 'm talking about here, with the map of uh, the, the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world. Here's a map of the ancient world. Let me get you my pen going here. All right, so you have, here's uh, Babylon down here. Here's the Mesopotamian region of the world. This is Iraq, Afghan, Af- Iraq, and Iran here, okay? So the Babylonian army traveled a long distance, more than any other, any, the longest distance of any ancient army up to that time. It was shocking what they did. They marched all the way up. This is the trade route. This is where Abraham went, okay? And they watched all here. And there's Carchemish right here. That battle with Egypt, it's uh, recognized in the ancient uh, historians like Herodotus. They defeated Egypt. Egypt usually had this whole area, Mediterranean region. Well, not anymore. Babylon's got it. So they marched into the Mediterranean region of the world. And that's what I'm talking about. So as we see it with my point on the board here, that in context, the word neighbor there would be referring to the citizens of the various nations in the Mediterranean, Mesopotamian regions of the world who were conquered and plundered by the Babylonians at the end of the 7th century BC and the beginning of the 6th century BC. Now therefore, people, these four statements in Habakkuk 2.15 are actually figurative language describing the Babylonians' cruel, imperialistic, and humiliating treatment of the citizens of these various nations that I just told you about. The Babylonians' cruel, harsh treatment of the citizens, their captives, of these nations is compared to intoxicating wine which the Babylonians forced these nations to drink so that they could humiliate them. So therefore, the fourth woe in verses 2 through 20 of this chapter is directed at the Babylonians for their cruel treatment and basically sexually abusing their, their captives and humiliating them for the purpose of humiliating them. It's directed against them because of their unrepentant, sinful conduct in relation to the various nations in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world. Now, many commentators take Habakkuk 2.15 as a strictly figurative language, but I believe this verse could also be taken literally. Why? Well, the passage says that the Babylonians characteristically forced their prisoners of war to drink when, quote-unquote, pouring out their rage which characterized them in order to get them intoxicated so as to gaze at their genitals. In other words, I'm telling you, is that the Babylonians expressed their rage by forcing their prisoners of war to become intoxicated with wine in order to gaze at their genitals with the implicit uh, suggestion of, of sexually abusing them, people. So this is not unusual for these nations to do that. You see it in war. You see it in. Uh, you hear about it with armies, uh, and even in our day and age, when they rape women, okay, and, and and kill children, innocent people. Well, that's the Babylonians. They were the first to really be involved in total warfare. Okay, mm-hmm. thus we saw. We said. Th- therefore, we see the reference to the genitals here in Habakkuk back of two fifteen. Not only refers to male genitalia but also female. Thus, the Babylonians not only sinned by forcing others to become intoxicated with wine, which characterized them as a people, but also they were involved in the sins of drunkenness and sexual sins such as adultery, fornication, homosexuality, which again is indicated by the reference to gazing at genitalia. So, as we noted in Habakkuk uh, 2.15, this verse is asserting that the Babylonians who were characterized by drunkenness also forced others to be intoxicated as well. So what we're seeing in the, pa- in the chapter is not only were they, when they, uh, they were imperialistic greed, okay? But they were also drunks, alcoholics, and sexually abusing people. They just were out of control, okay? They dominated these nations, they used their military might to just destroy and humiliate nations, subjugate them to themselves, make them their slaves. And this went on for 66 years. And this was God's judgment this was God's judgment. God doesn't need to come down, and one day he, the Lord God himself will come down, and uh, he, will use, he will be pre- physically present. But he, does, he can use evil nations to destroy other evil nations. That's how he governs the world. Now, this should be a comfort to us. When you see an unjust treatment, when you see nations, godless nations, and they continue to commit crimes and uh, unjustified wars, it's comforting to know that God's going to do something about it. This book tells us this. It's a nation, as I've been saying, it's a proclamation to the nations, including our own, that you better wake up because I am a God of judges and that's not a popular subject in this country today. And if you talk about it, you're not going to be a popular person. Look at Jeremiah. They tried to kill him, his, his own people. He, God sent him to go to the nation of Judah to get him to repent. He said, you don't capitulate to Nebuchadnezzar. You will die. You'll live if you capitulate to him. And many didn't listen to him. But what a message he was called to give to his nation that he loved. It'd be like someone, a pastor being told to proclaim it to his in America here, to say that. It would not make you a popular person. It shouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't pack your places out, okay? So there was a problem with drunkenness. Like, there's a problem with drunkenness today, alcohol abuse today, and drug abuse today. It's one of the things that's destroying our nation, okay? They want to make a big deal about guns. How about all the people who die in a drunk driving and the destroyed lives are from alcoholism? I know it. I've had people who I loved who died from the complications of alcohol abuse. Friends of mine. I can, I can mention two in particular that I know. Three I have. One was very, I was very close to one time. It's heartbreaking. So there was a problem with drunkenness in the ancient world, just as, is, as there is a problem with drunkenness today in the 21st century. In fact, there were actually believers that were getting drunk at the Lord's table if you read 1 Corinthians 11 20 and 21. The Bible has a lot to say about alcohol and its abuse, and its proper use. A number of passages warn against the dangers of drunkenness since it causes people to stagger. Psalm 107, 27, Proverbs 23, 34. You've seen that. If you've, lived, if you're, if you've gotten to this age like I am, six, you've seen that happen, and you might have probably fell out of a bar or two in your day and age. You don't have to tell me that, okay? I played in the rock band, and so we've all probably done this, okay? Not saying it's right, not saying whatever. Just listen. Okay? So it causes people to stagger. You look like an idiot. It makes them sick. We've seen that. You probably said, yeah, I had that, had that happen to me. And it makes the eyes red. It puts a person in a stupor, Jeremiah 51, 39, 57. And it makes a person poor. And it interferes with a leader's work. And I know pastors who have tremendous drug and alcohol problems. And I told you, one of them died not too long ago. Very, very sad. And you know, a lot of people, when they get depressed, the worst thing you could do as a believer, or even as a non-believer, is to to start drinking. Because you can't think straight. You're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. That means filled with the Spirit's thoughts and the Word of God, not the alcohol. Your mind is going to be taken over by the alcohol. And by the way, if you like to smoke pot, that's just as bad. It's taking over the mind. There's some Christians I know that think that it's all right to smoke uh, pot. It doesn't have any prohibitions against pot. If Paul was around today, he'd probably put, Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine and don't smoke pot. Because it's the same thing. It t- the drug takes over the mind. Why do you think people smoke it? So alcohol, the worst thing you could do when you're going through a difficult time is to drink. Because it's just going to cloud your judgment. If you're under tremendous stress, it's going to cause blood. And if you're a leader of any type of sort, be very careful. I don't drink in public with anybody, I might have a glass, somebody I know, but if I don't know who you are, a group is a big, I'm not going to touch it, because I, I don't want them to say, oh, the Bill's with us, so I can do it. And if I know somebody has a drinking problem, I will not drink in front of them. That's the law of love. Yeah, do I have the freedom to drink? But I'm not going to use my freedom to cause my brother to stumble or my sister alcohol drink, alcohol problems are a huge problem in the church today. I know it. I've been dealing with this kind of stuff for 30 years as a pastor. From the ministry I came from and now in the ministries I've had when I was in Iowa. The terrible situation that we have going on in America right now. So the foolishness and it is foolishness and this is what the Babylonians were involved with. And foolishness the foolishness of drunkenness is shown by the examples of Noah and Lot Yes, the great Noah, Gen- uh, Genesis nine nine twenty one, he had a vineyard, and he gets out of the ark. He probably oh the tremendous ordeal of being in the ark for, for, for how long he was in, and then he gets a vineyard. and said, like, "I'm going to make me some wine," and he t- he had a little bit too much to drink, okay, and so Lot also, his his daughters after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the daughters say, and they're mo, uh, well, what are we going to do? We have nobody to uh, have children with. Well, let's get dad drunk. And we'll, so we have incest. It, it led to an incestuous relationship here. That's where Mo, the nation of Moab came from. So they get their father, lot drunk, and they have sex with him. Nabal, he was a drug. First Samuel 25, 36 and 39. David had problems with, at times with alcohol. Second Samuel 11, 13. You have Absalom. 2 Samuel 13, uh, 28, and then you get the famous passage in Daniel 5, Belshazzar. He was, a, he was drunk as a skunk that night the handwriting was on the wall. And actually, the text says he peed himself. When he saw it. Unbelievable. Of course he would. He's drunk as a skunk. And what the heck is this? They all freaked out. He was a dead man that night. Called Daniel in, Daniel told him what it is. Your, your kingdom is you're done. Right there, you would think the guy would repent. Oh, but how could he repent? He's drunk as a skunk. He'd have to sleep it up before he came to his right mind to repent, right? Well, he didn't repent fast enough. So the Bible—it's interesting—and there are people. I have some Baptist friends that would probably disagree with me. The Bible doesn't prohibit drinking alcohol; it prohibits drunkenness. The believers are not to, we're not, as believers are not to associate with believers who are alcoholics. I mean, and I say unrepentant alcoholics. Read 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. through Drunkenness is a manifestation of the old sin nature. Gal- uh, Galatians 5, 19-21. And then you have Daniel chapter 5, I said, records Belshazzar, the Babylonian ruler, throwing a drinking party for his nobles, wives, and concubines on the night Babylon was captured and he was killed by the Middle Persian army. It's a devastating thing when a leader has a drinking problem. And we've had some presidents that were drinkers. Not a good thing. Not a good thing for our leaders to be drunk or on p- smoking pot or whatever. Goodness gracious, and they had the button. <laughs> the Apostle Paul in Romans thirteen thirteen, he exhorted the Roman believers to unite with him in conducting their lives properly as those who exist in the day, not by means of drunken parties, licentious promiscuity and jealous contention. Uh, hold your place. Uh, go to Romans chapter 13, please. Let's look at this. Look at Romans 13. And we're going to start at verse 13. Romans thirteen thirteen. So everything we're seeing in this passage... And I'm back in 2.15 about Babylon, which characterizes them. You could say it characterizes our nation. Sexual immorality is rampant like never before in this country. And also alcohol abuse, drug abuse. I've been a pastor for a long time now, okay? I'm 62 years old. I've been in ministry since I was thir- my early 30s. And let me tell you something. I see that you talk about the, the vagrants out here. I, I can look at the guy and I tell you right now he, whether he's, he's got a drinking or a drug problem. They're everywhere. We have a homeless situation because a lot of it is direct, not all of it, but directly attributed to alcohol and drug abuse. That's right. It is. Get to know some of them. Get to know the people who work with these people. I have. So, it says in Romans thirteen, 13 we're talking to the Christian community now about our, our responsibility with alcohol. Let us behave decently. Oh, isn't it interesting? The holidays are coming up. Okay. You got Thanksgiving, you got Christmas, you got New Year's. What do we do in this country? We party, and so we got to be careful. We represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be filled with the Spirit, not with the spirits. Okay, as you probably heard Romans thirteen thirteen. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies. Now he's telling the Christian community this. So there, are some Christians are involved in orgies. How do you, you gotta, how do you know that? Well, in the, Roman, in the background of the Roman Empire, you've got to look at it and stay in the context. Many of the Christians, were early on, they were Jewish Jewish believers, okay? Then the Gentiles, through Paul's ministry, started coming into the church, and they outnumbered the Jews. Now, the, what did they come from, the background they come from? Well, in the background back in the Roman century, in Greco-Roman culture, in the first century, it was not unusual for men to have boys partners. Yes. And it wasn't frowned upon unless you were, and forgive me, I I know it's Sunday morning, I didn't know the pastor was going to hear and start talking about sex to us. Receivers were frowned upon. You know what I'm saying, okay? You're all adults. So you had this going on, and you had people who were slaves, and they were many times abused, not all of them, but you had this kind of thing going on. And they had, in the the Greco-Roman culture, with the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, they would have sexual intercourse as part of their worship of these gods with the temple prostitutes, both male and female. Now, these are the people that were the first Gentile Christians. So you think America's bad? We're getting there, okay? We're getting there. So he's saying what he's saying, governing their behavior here through the spirit in order to protect them from going back to their former way of life, which would have involved for some of them orgies, And drunkenness. So he says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Two, obey what the Spirit's teaching you. Okay? That's the root essence of it all. In the Word of God, he teaches us, right? Well, you're to put on Christ means to obey his commands. First one, love one another as I have loved you. John 13, 34. And also, of course, fifteen twelve. you see it. And there's many expressions of the command. When you're obeying the command, love one another, you will forgive one another. So somebody hurts you, and it will happen in the church. You will get hurt by somebody, either by me, or you hurt me, or we hurt each other. We're sinners. Got to expect it to happen. I'm saying you should, but it happens. So forgive. If you forgive one another, why should you forgive? Because God forgave us. I'm obligated to forgive you. That shows I love you. Why am I obligated? Because God forgave me much more than, uh, much more for what I did to God. He forgave me much more than whatever you did to me. Trust me. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another tolerant with one another. So when it comes to political views, as you heard me say, and we get the politics going on, be tolerant. It doesn't mean just because you're tolerant of the person's view doesn't mean you agree with it. We do have freedom of speech in the country. Now, you have the freedom of speech to say something stupid. Really, you do. It's in the Constitution. If we take away the freedom of speech of 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 the Muslim, we're going to take it away from ourselves. If you take it away from the homosexual, you're taking it away from yourself. You see, it comes to this... Responsibility—the privilege of having freedom of speech—comes responsibility, and many people are abusing that responsibility. But that's on them. That's on them. Okay. So, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Would also would mean appropriating by faith your union identification with Christ, that which we've been studying in sanctification. Paul says in his writings, "We're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ." Through the baptism of the Spirit, that means God looks at you as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Christ. You're a new human, you're a new human being. You're, a new, you're part of the new humanity. You're, part of the, you're the member of the body of Christ. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. You're victorious over your enemy, Satan, who wages war. I'm not your enemy, okay? Your brother in Christ is not your enemy. The homosexual, the president of the United States, is not your enemy. It's Satan. Ephesians 6.10 to the end, verse 18. So we are, we are in a place of victory. How do, you, how do you experience that victory over sin and Satan's cosmic system? Appropriate by faith. You're united in vacation with Christ. Consider yourself dead to the sin nature and alive to God, or dead to the cosmic system of Satan and alive to God, which means you're a slave to God now. You don't have to go back to the, that former way of life that just caused you shame, Paul said, in Romans 6. So he says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sin nature. Now, Paul in Ephesians 5.18, he prohibited the Christian community from being intoxicated with wine and commanded them to be filled or influenced by the Spirit. Go to now over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse fifteen. What a great! I'm working on this book right now, and I'm teaching it uh, with Winchester Bible Ministries, and eventually we're going to teach it here. And uh, but there's many other things I want to teach first before we do this book. But um, this is an amazing book, uh, and, and we'll have a lot of fun in it. We're going to have a lot of fun in a lot of the books. As you told, I told you we're going to be doing Genesis, we're going to be Exodus, we'll be do Daniel, we'll do Romans, we'll do Colossians, we're going to do Philemon, we'll do all these books. Okay. So it says in Heba- uh, Ephesians 5, 15. Now the first three chapters are the doctrinal section, we call it, of the book. In other words, we call it the indicatives of the Christian faith. This is the propositions. This is what God says who we are in Christ. Chapter 4, 5, and 6 give us the application. How do we apply the doctrine? Paul does this in his Romans. He did it, he did it in Romans. He does it in Ephesians. And he does it in Colossians too. So now we're in the doctrinal section. Now look what he says in this part of Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 5.15, be careful, very careful, very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of your opportunity because the days are evil. Listen to me. When he talks about opportunity, making the most of your opportunity, I can't stress this enough. God impressed this upon me years ago. And I, 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 it changed my life when I, I, it sunk in. It clicked one day. We don't only have so much time on earth. You know, I had a brother who was 55 years old, as many of you know, who died of cancer, and he, it was terrible the way he died. Okay? He, had, he was 55 years old. I remember a year before he, got, he came he diagnosed with it, I saw my brother. He, I was over there having a scotch and a, uh, and a cigar and we're talking, we're talking, they're talking about business and talking about investing in Bitcoin and all this other stuff, and I'm like, going, I'm like that is this. you know, and I'm like I'm like on the outside watching this, and I just pray to God. I said, these guys are planning, which there's nothing wrong to plan, but these guys are planning and they have no, they have no consideration of you. Well, you know what? They all learned. You don't, you don't know if you'll have next year. I don't know. You know, people say, oh, you know, when I say, I, don't, I say that seriously. I, there's no guarantee I'll be alive next year or you'll be alive next year or we might be raptured in the next moment for all you know. What I'm trying to say is you only have so much time. This is called the stewardship of your time. Time, talent, and treasure, you'll hear me say. Time, most important thing that we have. What are we doing with it? Are we doing it to to do our own thing or is the time that we have to glorify God? Because we only have so much time, and I hate wasting time. I tell you a story. I, I, I I'm a. am used to be a. I used to live and die by my Boston sports teams. If you have it, if you're visiting, you kind of figure it out. I'm from Massachusetts with my drop in my eyes. Okay. Probably saying, I don't know what this guy's saying half the time, but to have patience and mercy and tolerance of me, I'm from Massachusetts as many of you do, and I'm thankful for that. Thank you for treating me in love. But you're sitting there, you know, he's like, I got this. I'm watching the Celtics. Okay. Now, there's, they've picked many but to, to win the championship this year. So they go and they play two tough teams, the Wolves and the, uh, and the Sixers, their rival. And they choked at the end of the game. They choked. We call it messages, we call it. They throw the ball away. They can't hit a clutch shot. When the game's on, they're front runners. When, big, when they get a big lead, oh, they're, no they're great players. But when it comes down time, where it's Larry Bird time... You know, and you gotta hit the big shot. Larry used to hit, I'm spoiled. I used to saw Gene ha- John Havlicek and, and Sam Jones at the end of his career, and you got Larry Bird. I mean, the greatest clutch shooters of all time. Tell me, don't tell you about Michael Jordan. He couldn't compare to Larry Bird. I'm sorry. You wanna talk about it after class? Go ahead, we'll, I'll meet you in the packet line. <laughs> they lose the stupid game, and I watched two hours watching them joke it. I was like, I'm so upset. I can't believe that. I remember listening to Bob Thiem one time. He was watching this some Houston team. I don't know why you would want to vote for a Houston team, but he was there. So he mentioned the same thing. I said, you know, I feel the same way because he could have been doing something else and then watching these losers choke the game away. Gosh, look. Next time, you know, let me tell me in advance if they're going to win? I like the so now you probably just watch the replay and you know that way you won't get frustrated and have to rebomb fifty million times. So watching the Celtics will get you to do that. So be very careful. How you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Use your time wisely. Use it wisely. You only have so much time. It's the most valuable thing you've got. And don't think you've got till next year or 10 years or 20 years. I don't look in those terms. I just don't. You don't people talk about 20 years. Like, I might not even be here. You don't even know. I'm living it this today's the day I go. That's what we got to do. That's what he's talking about. So let me, if you were to, God, the Lord told you you're going to die tomorrow. What do you think you would put your time into? Think about it. Then he says in verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit notice it's this capital S spirit and not plural okay don't be filled with the spirits you know so here's my translation of that verse and do not permit yourselves to get into the habit of being drunk with wine because that is nonsensical behavior but rather permit yourselves on an habitual basis to be influenced by means of the spirit i you see this phrase permit yourselves it's in both the verbs there one of them being plural uh-oh, filled and it talk, it's, a, it's very unusual. It's, a, it's called a causative, passive voice. It talks about volitional responsibility. You, okay, you ought to permit yourself. I mean, you ought to make a decision, volitional decision, conscious volitional decision to be influenced, filled with the Spirit, means you're influenced by what the Spirit's teaching you in the Scriptures. Paul talks about this in detail in Romans 8, 5, 6. Chapter 8, verses 5, 6, and 7. Okay? So Paul taught. It's interesting. Paul taught in 1 Timothy 3, 3. Titus 1.7, both books we're going to do in the future, that one of the qualifications, if we, if Lord permitting, right? Paul taught in 1 Timothy 3.3, Titus 1.7, that one of the qualifications, which must be met in order for the man with a spiritual gift to pass the teacher to become an overseer, is that he must not be an alcoholic. And this is one of the qualifications for a deacon. Now, as we noted in our study of Habakkuk 2.15, this verse asserts that the Babylonians forced their prisoners of war to become intoxicated with wine in order to gaze upon their genitals. So, we talked about the alcohol problem. And this is a, gazing upon their genitals is a reference to not only male genitalia, but female. Thus, they were involved in not only heterosexual sins, such as fornication and adultery, but also homosexual sins. Paul taught in Romans 1 that God not only gave heathen Gentile women over to lesbianism, for their rejection of him. But also he gave them gave the men over to homosexuality for the same reason. As I pointed out to you before, the Greco-Roman society of the first century of Paul's day tolerated homosexuality and viewed it as superior to heterosexuality. But in Jewish culture, it was considered an abomination because the law condemned and prohibited it. Leviticus 18, 22 and Leviticus 20, verse 13. The Bible never, ever, I, I, met a, I knew this guy, who's a, he's a Christian, and that was Iowa. He's a Christian. But he, believe, he, he he, was involved in homosexual behavior. And he tried to tell me, said, There's nowhere I said, from all due respect, from cover to cover, it ever condones homosexual behavior. It's condemned. Well, Jesus never said anything about it. Jesus didn't say anything about it because they didn't have a problem in Jewish culture, because they killed people like that. That's why they didn't have a problem with it. And they went, Oh, yeah, we oh. Good thing you don't live in Jewish culture. You'd be dead by now. They would have stoned you in the street over there. Oh, gee, yeah. Well, you might want to wake up because there's a God in heaven that, you know, and I say this, but we need to understand something, that the early Christians, many of them, came from that kind of background. Paul even mentions that. You know, in the, uh, the inheriting the kingdom of God, some of you used to be like this, and he talks about practicing homosexuals. So don't tell me God can't deliver a homosexual from their sins. He can, just like he can can, uh, deliver them from uh, heterosexual sins. So the Greco-Roman society of Paul's day tolerated homosexuality and viewed it as superior to heterosexuality. Yep, But in Jewish culture, as we pointed out, it was considered an abomination since the Mosaic Law condemned and prohibited. In the Greek New Testament, Paul teaches that practicing homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God, meaning that they will not in, uh, receive their eternal inheritance. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Lesbianism and homosexuality is a manifestation of the old sin nature. Just read Galatians 5, 19-21, and 1 Timothy 1, through 9-10, as well as Ephesians 5, verses 3-5. Now we must remember that God hates the sin of homosexuality. But he does love the sinner because he sent Christ to the cross for every sin in human history, past, present, future, not only for the heterosexual, but the homosexual. Got to remember that. Okay? So God thought that much... They they were created in the image of God, too. It just happens to be that this sin-nature trend, we call it, leans to homosexuality. Some, the trend is, they trend they, 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 they drift over to, you know, uh, lasciviousness, uh, you know, uh, heterosexual sins. Or some of them are like, you know, the real prudes. They never have any fun, we recall, right? They never did anything wrong, but they're wicked judgmental, and they're legalistic, and they think they're better than everybody else. They're just as bad. They're, they're the Pharisees, okay? So we must remember that God hates the sin of homosexuality, but he does love the sinner, and we know that. Like 2,000 years ago at Calvary, when the Son of God became a human being and suffered the wrath of God on the cross for us so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire. And he lived a life of perfect obedience in the law that we couldn't live so that that issue is out of the way. That's what he did for everybody. And we'll close with this. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul taught the Colossians that they must put off sexual immorality, sexual impurity and sexual lust. That means Say that he's trying to govern their behavior the churches. That means that sin, sin uh, Christians can get involved in the same exact sins. You probably know this by experience. Same exact sins as the non-believer. That's why you have these prohibitions in scripture. Why do we need that? Because we still have a sin nature, which we won't be rid of until our death or the rapture, whichever comes first. And then when we get a resurrection body at the rapture, which will be immortal, we'll never sin again. You know, God didn't save us so that we could sin at a future day. No, he's, he's going to wipe that clear. It says in Colossians 3, 5, in my translation, Therefore, I solemnly charge each and every one of you to put to death the members of that which belongs to your earthly nature with regards to the practice of sexual immorality, sexual impurity, sexual lust, evil desire, as well as that which is greed, which is, is, uh, is as an eternal spiritual truth, the gnomic present there in the, in the verb, is characterized as idolatry. Sexual immorality, people refers to the practice of sexual immorality of any kind or sexual sin of a general kind which includes many different behaviors and it denotes any type of sexual activity outside of marriage including fornication and adultery and even prostitution God wants you to have fun he wants you to have sex but it's got to be within the boundaries of marriage he does not saying that because he doesn't want you to have any fun well when you get married you can have all the fun you want okay go to town okay you know, populate the earth, he told them, right? Okay, so do that. So if you're married and you're, and, you're, and you're still able to procreate for the good of the church and the, good, the cause of Christ, start getting to work on that, okay? That's a decree from the, the, the pastor. So here we have sexual immorality of any kind he's talking about. And then lastly, sexual impurity refers to the... Pra- I have to have a little bit of levity because it is a little serious subject if you haven't got the, got the message there. So I kind of like to throw, intersperse uh, a little levity there, which is not what I was intending because that's just the Holy Spirit, I guess, because, or me. Anyway, sexual impurity refers to the practice of all types of sexual sins such as premarital sex, rape, adultery, homosexuality, and other sexual deviations, and it denotes the state of moral impurity in relation to sexual sin. And sexual lust, that pertains to the practice of uncontrolled sexual passion, lustful desire, and evil craving. So how do you put to death these things? As we've been pointing in our, in our doctrine of sanctification on Wednesday, Romans six eleven through 12 says, consider yourselves dead to this in nature and alive to God. Because Why? Because you've died with Christ and raised with Christ. In other words, live in a manner that's consistent to who God made you to be, a child of God. You're no longer a child of the devil. We're not children of the devil. They sin. They're evil. They're rebellious. We're out of that now. We have a new lifestyle. The true alternative lifestyle is the Christian way of life, the spiritual life, where there's joy, there's peace, there's love, there's forgiveness. It's where it's at. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this lesson to be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <coughs>